I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome. To Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Tales to Terrify and Starship Sofa. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 161. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton Clark, and this week we bring you a wonderful pair of short tales, beginning with Never Leave Me by Michelle Ann King. Michelle was born in East London and now lives in Essex. Her stories have appeared in over 70 different venues, including Interzone, Strange Horizons and Black Static. Her favourite author is Stephen King, sadly no relation, and she also loves zombies, Las Vegas and good scotch whisky. Her first short story collection, Transient Tales, is available in ebook and paperbook from Amazon and other online retailers. Links, of course, are in our show notes. Her story is read by Tatiana Gomberg. Tatiana is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damn thing. She lives in New York City. And now, Never Leave Me by Michelle Ann King. Katrine grew up with the stories. She knew them as well as she knew her own name. First there was True Love's Kiss. Then the fair maiden became the radiant bride and she lived happily ever after. But the stories all stopped there, and Katrine hadn't realized just how much ever after there would be. She loved her cottage and her garden, and she deeply loved her husband. But he went hunting in the forest, where there were dryads, and fishing in the sea, where there were selkies. And then he sold the meat and skins in the village market, where there were many more fair maidens. Aaron laughed at her fears and kissed her forehead, my foolish love, he said, and while his tone was as sweet as ever, the words themselves scratched her like claws. What man truly loved a fool? Her heart would not be at rest for all his kisses. Promise you will never leave me, she said. Swear it. I swear to you that we will not be parted, he said, and gave her his oath with his words and his touch. But among the village gossips, Katrine had learned new stories, not for children, and they taught her that words were as easily forgotten as spoken, and a man's body was loyal only to its own desires. Her fears twisted in her stomach and were not soothed for all his caresses. 
When Aaron next left for the hunt, she tried reading the bones, but the only answer they gave her was that all things must die. My love will not, she said, and scattered them to the winds in anger. She went to the old woman on the hill, the one the villagers called witch, the one they said consorted with ghosts, the one they shunned, until their animals got sick or their harvests failed. Greetings, old mother, Katrine said, and placed her gifts of tobacco and honey wine on the small wooden table by the door. The witch put down her pipe and leaned back in her chair. I will give you what you need, she said, but not what you want. I have no time for riddles, mother, Katrine said, thinking of Aaron and the smooth, supple limbs of nymphs. He had been gone for three nights. Will you help me? I will brew you a tea, the witch said. It will calm you and bring you clarity. Katrine gripped her skirts, the material bunching in her fist. I do not come for tea or clarity. I see perfectly well. She saw moonlit arms around Aaron's sun-burnished chest, leaves in his hair, birds startled into the air by his cries. She saw these things burning behind her eyelids every night he was away from her. I come for my husband, she said. I come for magic that will keep him at my side. I know such spells exist. They do, the witch said. But I will not perform them. Katrine straightened. You would refuse me? The witch rocked back and forth. I would. I must. It is not my place or yours, child, to steal the will of others. That is old magic and tricksy. To attempt it would be an evil thing indeed. Then what's the point of it? Why would the gods create such powers if we're not able to use them? Katrine picked up the bottle she had left on the table. Child, you do not understand. You... No! I will hear no lectures, mother. Her hand twitched, and the wine bottle slipped through her fingers. It shattered on the stone floor. The old witch thought Katrine did not understand, but she was wrong. Aaron was Katrine's man. She knew what he needed, knew what would make him happy. The witch was shaking her head, but Katrine also knew that if you honored their spirits and ate their hearts, the dead would give up their secrets. She bent down and picked up the broken bottle. The witch had no daughters to inherit her powers, so when her time was done, the magic would simply fade with her into the soil, gone forever. Waste was a crime, was it not? To allow such a thing to occur would be to spurn the gift of the gods. Surely that was an evil worse than all others. Katrine closed her hand around the sparkling shard of glass and made sure that the magic would not be lost. She returned home with a belly full of meat and a mind full of power. Aaron was waiting at the cottage door, but he trembled when he saw her, and his smile disappeared like sun behind storm cloud. His eyes widened. What have you done, Katrine? The old woman is gone from the forest, she said. I am the witch now. She held out her arms, but he shrank away from her.
Come, she chided. It's only blood. It will wash away. From your skin, yes, he said. But from your heart? From your soul? He shook his head. What have you done? He whispered again. She watched him turn from her, his muscles tensing as if to run. She raised her hand. No, she said. You will not leave me. You will never leave me. The words thrummed in her mouth, and she spat blood upon the ground. Aaron stilled, as prey before the hunter. Katrine held out her arms again, and this time he came into her embrace. But he shivered at her touch, and his lips tasted of fruit left to rot in the sun. Afterwards, he gazed at her with a kind of wonder, but it was not as he once had. You are ugly, he said. How could I never have seen this before? She looked to the mirror above their bed, and it reassured her that his words were not true, but it did not ease their sting. Katrine sat up and pulled the covers around herself. He watched her, fear and disgust, taking turns to twist his features. She closed her eyes, let her head drop to her knees. Do not look at me so, she said. I cannot bear it. Go away now. Leave me alone. Aaron laughed, loud and bitter. That I cannot do, he said. You have seen to it. Katrine wept, and he did not comfort her. The year aged and grew colder. Ice formed around the cottage, as it had around their hearts. Aaron did not hunt or fish or go to market. Leave me, she said. But her words were no longer rich with stolen magic, and however hard she tried, the spell would not break. I did not want this, she raged at the moon, but if it hurt her, it offered no answer. She still made honey wine, and the pantry shelves gradually filled with bottles. The birds sang no longer, but the sound of glass smashing on stone had a musical charm of its own. She called Aaron to her side, and he came swiftly as he always did. She cupped his cheek and said that she loved him, and told herself she did not notice how he flinched. The shard flashed in her hand as it had once before, and the frozen soil of her garden was nurtured with warm blood. You loved me too once, she said as he fell. But death parts all lovers, come the end. Katrine went back inside her cottage and cried for all she had lost. With her head bowed and her eyes clouded, she did not see the shape rise from the ground and pause at the window. Not all, it said. Breaking up is indeed hard to do, dear listener. Our second story is The Prototype by Judith Field. Judith lives in London. She's a pharmacist and medical indexer and editor. The daughter of writers, she learned how to agonize over fiction submissions at her mother's and father's knee. In 2009, she made a New Year's resolution to start writing and get published within the year. 
Pretty soon she realized how unrealistic that was, but in fact it worked, because she got a slot to write a weekly column in a local paper shortly before the end of that year. It ran for several years, and she still writes occasional feature articles for the paper. Her non-fiction articles have appeared in Genealogy and General Interest magazines. Her fiction, mainly speculative, has appeared in a variety of publications in the USA, UK, and Australia. She speaks five languages and can say, "Please publish this story" in all of them. When not writing, she works at the day job, studies for a master's in English, sings, and swims. She is science fiction editor at Red Sun magazine, and you can find her work online via the links in our show notes. Your narrator for the story is Margaret Essex. Margaret lives the good life on a small piece of rural New South Wales, Australia, with an amazing man, a couple of pets, all the usual biting and stinging critters that make great horror stories for their visitors, and several rambunctious wombats. And now, the prototype by Judith Field. When they let me out of hospital, I decided to rent somewhere with space to write. Joe, the social worker, helped me find a terraced house in the old part of town, the only one in the row not converted into flats. Gentrification had leapfrogged the area. There were no skips outside the tumble-down houses, no four by fours blocking the narrow streets. The shades of my immigrant ancestors spoke to me in the place they'd once made a crowded, warm world of their own. Bit big for a youngster like you on your own, the landlord said. Miss a, Claire Lev, Joe said. Claire Lev, Millwall Two, I chanted, using the rising and falling cadence of a football commentator. Okay, name for a house, Millwall, bucolic, strong. Joe pursed her lips, and shook her head at my display of what the shrink dubbed "knight's move" thinking. Miss Lev, the landlord leaned away from me, as though I was contagious. He told me a rabbi had lived in the house, which meant that he'd labelled me as Jewish. Once people slot you in like that. The label is like a flashing light in their heads, steering everything they say. I waited for him to ask if I knew the Cohens. It was about eighty years ago. There were a lot of you people round here then. You people. I'll take it, I said. No one since the rabbi had smartened the house up. The faded peeling wallpaper. Looked as if it had been there since the thirties. It was patterned with overblown tea roses in which I saw faces. The bathroom looked even older, with its rust-streaked basin. The bathtub stood on little bunched feet, poised to run. The attic became my writing room. I scattered rag rugs and bean bags over the floorboards. The light poured in through two huge skylights, and blasted the frozen shadows off my brain. Sometimes, I'd be writing a poem, and in mid-sentence, I'd have to stop, as though someone had plucked the thoughts right out of my head. It didn't help that the house was full of noise, pipes clanging, stairs squeaking, 
floors groaning. The cat flap in the back door banged, even on windless days. I rang the landlord and asked him to get rid of it. I heard soldiers marching in one of the bedrooms. But when I went in, there was nothing to see, even though I could still hear them. And always the smell of wet mud, the sound of water dripping. Outside the kitchen was a tiny garden, grass, with a couple of anonymous scrawny trees. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen. The tablets made me constantly hungry. I decided to go cold turkey, to stop the medication, and to try to lose weight. I never seemed to be able to keep the cracked, dull linoleum on the kitchen floor clean. I washed it every morning, but a few hours later there would be another line of muddy blobs leading from the back door, like animal tracks. In bed I squirmed, trying to sleep. A mob of problems whirled round my mind. When I had worried about each one, they all took another turn. I stood in the middle as they danced around me, pulling at me, demanding a piece of me in higher and higher-pitched voices. Bills, poetry, wait, leaky roof, benefit, noise in the house, food. One night, a hand stroked my hair. Claire, poor Claire, the female voice said. That's all you ever say, I replied. Two old women's voices discussed a cake recipe. It made my stomach crumble. I had to have a peanut butter and banana sandwich for lunch, cut diagonally, set on the plate with the red line round the edge. Otherwise my nerves would jangle, and a band would tighten around my ribs as I forced myself to breathe. The sandwich had to be sliced with one of the blue-handled knives that made me feel safe when I held them. I rummaged about in the drawer, but my fingers met one of the solid metal ones. It weighed my hand down, and the edges of the handle felt alien. My heart pounded faster as I poked and prodded in the drawer. My mouth dried. I felt sick, and the room became fuzzy round the edges. Claire, poor Claire, said the woman. She's useless, and you know it, a new male voice said. Can't even find the right knife. I smelled that muddy, earthy odour, even though it wasn't raining. The cat flap banged, and movement flickered in the corner of my eye. I grabbed a carving knife and whipped around, jerking the blade forwards. Get out! My voice caught on the lump in my throat as tears rose behind my eyes. A tiny, human-shaped pile of mud stood by the back door, in front of the cat flap. I dropped the knife with a clatter that seemed to go on and on. I rubbed the back of my hand across my nose. The man's voice started again. You clumsy, filthy whore! Give up! You're worthless! Take that knife and slit your... Shut it! The man-thing shouted. My voice is the only one she needs to hear. Silence. I reached down. No, said the mud-thing. I'll deal with that. 
it kicked the knife under the fridge. I backed away. My fists clenched until I was pressed against the wall. The thing walked towards me. Look at me, it commanded. Its eyes glowed red. Warmth ran through my veins. I breathed out, and my heartbeat slowed. Don't be scared. Forget the others. They're gone. I'm your helper. Better let you see my job description. Here are my personal specifications and objectives. The top of its head opened. It reached inside, pulled out a roll of parchment, and handed it to me. Careful, it's written in a special ink, made out of oak galls, copperas, and gum arabic. <laughs> you won't find them down in the shops. The orange-tinted parchment was peppered with the hair follicles of the animal from which it came, as if hit by a tiny shotgun. The black square letters were written with a sweeping hand, broad upstrokes and narrow downstrokes. Some were embellished with crown shapes at the top, others stretched, giving a solid edge to each column of text. My Hebrew was as rusty as the taps in the bathroom, and my shaking hands made it hard to read. But I made out the letters Gimel, Lamed, Mem. You're a golem? It nodded. Call me Rishon. Don't you know who lived here? Rabbi Yossi was one of the greatest twentieth-century mystics. He made me. I'm a servant, made out of non-living stuff by magic. Okay. What would I have to say to get rid of it? I tried to dredge up some Hebrew from my memory. Glida! I shouted. Ice cream? <laughs> You'll have to get your own. But I'll protect you, if you let me stay. It spoke as if it was reading my mind. You? How? Jump up and bite attackers on the kneecap? Now, you're being sizes. I can't help it if I'm only twelve inches high. I'm a mock-up, a prototype. Rabbi Yossi wanted to make the perfect golem. That's why I can speak. The others couldn't. He died before he could make a full-size version. I'll protect you from Cossacks, expulsion, blood libel, and the voices in your head. I can help round the house. It ran its hand across a cupboard door and stared at the place where its fingertips would be. It tutted. I do cleaning as well. Those your footprints all over the kitchen floor? Sorry about that, but I had to get in quickly. Couldn't stop to wipe my feet. Why were you in the garden? Where else could I go? I was minding my own business in the attic. For eighty years I've been up there. But then you had to go and use it as a study. 
couldn't stay up there with you tapping at your keyboard all day. It's like being inside a ticking clock. He put his hands up to where its ears would have been. I've been hiding in the garden, but it keeps raining. I'm made of clay. The rabbi never got round to firing me in the kiln, so I have to come in out of the wet. I'm a priceless ethnic artifact, you know. I'm not an it, I'm a he. If you stay, do I have to tie a bit of red string round my wrist? Kabbalah and all that? Kabbalahs! Made up nonsense! Anyway, I've got work to do. Now that I've shut up that lot of voices in your head, I'll go get rid of the balmy army in the bedroom. He reached out an upturned hand and twitched the curled fingers towards himself. Scroll, give. I passed it to him, and he put it back inside his head. It clicked shut. The stairs creaked as he made his way upstairs. I listened for Rishon, coming up and down, in and out through the cat flap while I worked. And the poetry flowed. Now that there was silence in my head, instead of the crushing band around my ribs, I felt a painless silver belt around my brain, squeezing ideas out, yet at the same time holding them back, so that they didn't all erupt at once. Everything in sight glowed, sunshine dancing on glass. Rishon reappeared one morning as I was looking out the kitchen window at the gnarled, pallid leaves sprouting on the stunted trees. The doorbell rang. He ran out through the cat flap. I opened the front door a few inches. The community nurse put her hand through, showing her ID. I peered around. I'm Vicky, said the woman by the nurse's side. I'm your befriender. I let them in. I didn't look at the woman. If she spoke, I didn't hear it. Let's talk about your treatment plan. The nurse started some spiel about empowerment. About concordance between service user and caregiver. She gave me new tablets. I had to take one a day. You're a bit isolated here. Pop into the day centre. It'll do you good. They'll send transport for you. Get to know people. Learn new skills. When the bus came, I wouldn't open the door. You should go, Rishan said. Make friends. Maybe meet a nice young man. I don't want to meet someone like me. I'm fine here. I've got my poetry. And you. It's perfectly okay. Rishan clambered onto the kitchen worktop and shuffled forward till his face was up against mine. Now look, he shouted. I could see inside his mouth. You have to do more with your life than skulk around here all day. When you do creep outside, it's only to scuttle to those poky little shops. Get out. Look at nature. You might pick up some ideas for poems. No, you look, Mr. Perfect Golem. I do have a choice about all this, and I'm not going. I don't want to write about how it feels to sit in one of those care-in-the-community buses 
with people gawping at me. Why don't you learn to drive, then? I can drive. I used to have a car. Stolen, was it? I'm not surprised around here. Sort of. But it happened where I used to live, before I went into hospital. One night, the police took my car away. By the next morning, before I got up, they'd replaced it with one that looked exactly the same. Only they could control it. So I had to get rid of it. That's clever of them, considering they couldn't catch a one-legged burglar with his arms tied behind his back. Rishan picked up my tablet box and looked inside. You're meant to take these every day, you know. Get yourself a glass of water. He pushed the box towards me. A week later, the Vicky woman came back. I shouted at her to go away, but she said she couldn't hear me. I opened the door. A shove at the back of my knees ejected me, staggering and stumbling onto the path. The door slammed shut. Let me in, I shouted through the letterbox. Please, I haven't got my keys. Go on now, get some fresh air, Rishan called from inside the house. It's a sunny day. I'm off into the garden. I'll open the door. Later. I stood up. Breathed in. Breathed out. Turned around. Vicky looked to be in her mid-thirties. Slim, with blonde hair tucked into a knitted tea-cosy hat. Her woolly tights were zigzagged with colour like the patterns you see when you press on your eyelids. Hello again. Walk with me? Is your name short for Victoria? Not short for anything. I'm just Vicky. Just Vicky's an okay name. She smiled. Does this mean you'll come for a walk? I nodded. I'm on a drug called Aripiprazole. Okay name for a man, that. Sounds Greek. Nah, nobody'd be able to spell it. We walked up the street, the wind scudding cans and empty crisp packets across the pavement in front of us. Our path lit up, then dimmed, as clouds tore across the sun. I'd never noticed the park entrance at the end of the street before. The park was deserted, except for old men sitting on benches and people with nowhere else to go. Vicky pointed to a seat outside. We won't go in this time. Let's sit here. Recovery is like climbing a flight of stairs. You have to take one step at a time. I turned my face upwards and closed my eyes. The sun shone red through my eyelids. Vicky told me about her ceramic studio and the class she ran. I write poetry, I said. Here's one about the shrink at the loony bin. Take head off, bin man, a catamaran. They call that a clang association, Vicky said. Don't you start. That's bin man talk. The clang association would make a good name for a band. We talked about music. The sunlight drained away. Coatless, I shivered in the wind. It began to rain and we ran back down the street.
I hammered on my door. No reply. Vicky made up for saying that naff thing about climbing stairs by rifling in her bag, taking out some pottery tool, sliding it between the frame and the door, and opening it. If that was a skill they taught at the day centre, I might just go. I didn't ask her in. I stepped into the house and slammed the door. A note lay on the kitchen table. The landlord had nailed the cap flap in the back door shut. I hurled the door open and rushed into the garden. A puddle of wet clay lay on the ground. A bit of yellowing paper, washed clear, lay to one side. I stood, water running down my face. I scooped up the mud and the paper and stashed them in a plastic bag at the back of the cupboard under the eaves. Alone in the silent house for the first time. Vicky's guiding me back into the world. We've been out for coffee. We've been shopping at Tesco's. I entered a poem about her in a competition. I'm still waiting to hear if I've won. She's a shoulder to lean on. Someone to trust. She believes in me as a whole person, with true abilities, as I believed in Rishan the Golem, who showed me the way. I've started Hebrew lessons. I've been copying the bit of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 1, actually, that says, Walk before me and be perfect. I've nearly got it right. Between that and Vicky's pottery class, I'm hardly in the house these days. I've made friends at Hebrew class, but the potters won't sit with me. She's weird, they say. All she makes is little clay men. I'm practising until I can make perfect. <laughs> What drew us to this story wasn't so much its unique spin on Gollum stories, but its compassionate and frank study of how lonely a person's struggle for mental health can sometimes be. It's not often we read a story this tender or have a chance to feature it on the Triple F. We are honoured that Judith sent us this one. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We, Gary Dahl, my editor, Mark Zanfardino, our audio engineer, and myself, love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. As always, please leave us a review on iTunes, Acast, and other podcatchers so that we can build our listenership and keep the stories flowing. Please also consider making a donation on the District of Wonders Patreon page so that we can keep the podcast up and running. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And please be sure to give credit where that credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be left out in the rain. Speaking of rain, I'm going to go and dodge some raindrops myself. I'll see you all next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.